All right, this is the Michael Slate Show, and I'm Michael Slate, and we've got another great show for you today. At the back end of the show, we'll hear part of a, a recent talk by Sansara Taylor, writer for Revcom.us and a co-initiator of Rise Up for Abortion Rights. She'll talk about the daily atrocities that women have been subjected to in Texas, where nearly all abortions have been banned since September 1st. And opening the show up, we're bringing listeners a special rebroadcast of an interview, RadioPuya.com, conducted with Larry Everest and Dolly Veal on the international emergency campaign to free Iran's political prisoners now. The IEC, digging into the urgency of this campaign, its strategy for actually freeing these prisoners, and the campaign's plans for 2022. Radio Puya, that's P-O-O-Y-A, Puya, was formed by a group of Persian culture lovers to be a tribute for Farsi-speaking intellectuals all over the world. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan voice for those who love justice and freedom, freedom of the press, of speech, and of thought. Dolly Veal is a co-initiator of the emergency campaign. Larry Everest is the author of Oil, Power, and Empire, Iraq and the U.S. Global Agenda, who reported from Iran in 1979 and 1980. Both Dolly and Larry are contributors to Revcom.us. This interview with them was part of a week of programming in English and Farsi, organized by the IEC and Radio Puya to highlight the Islamic Republic of Iran's brutal, illegitimate imprisonment of hundreds of political prisoners and its violent repression of the Iranian people as a counter to the regime's celebration of its founding and reactionary rule. Listeners can go to the IEC's website, which is www.freeiranpoliticalprisonersnow.org. We want to give a heartfelt thanks and shout out to our colleagues at radiopoya.com for teaming up with the IEC for this week of programming and for giving us permission to rebroadcast this interview. Please note the opinions of the programmers and guests are not necessarily the views of Radio Puya. Hello, everyone. My name is Vahid Badi'i, and I'm uh, conducting this interview with two phenomenal people, uh, which is with, with a team up and doing the program. You heard that on the beginning of the show. Uh, we have Dolly Vail and Larry Everest with us. And uh, I'm very happy and honored to have this opportunity to talk to these two wonderful people. Dolly, would you please introduce yourself and tell us what are you doing and what is your role on this uh, program? Sure. Greetings to every, all your listeners all around the world. And I want to first start by thanking you for doing this. This is very important. Uh, to bring to the entire world the situation of Iran's political prisoners and the demand to free them. And it's very urgent. Uh, I'm one of the initiators of this campaign. And in late 2020, um, we received a uh, message from the Burn the Cage, Free the Birds movement in Europe saying what the situation was in terms of a new wave of repression in Iran that was uh, in response to the uprising in 2019. And it was getting ready for the anniversary that there was severe roundups and, uh, you know, intensified repression. But it was in response to the resistance. So we felt it was important for people in this country that has a history in terms of oppressing people in Iran to stand up and stand with the people who were standing up in Iran. So we'd launched this campaign and last year we made it uh, an emergency campaign 
to correspond to the actual situation on the ground for the prisoners. And our campaign is international in terms of a global movement that uh, have people uniting with one voice saying free Iran's political prisoners now. Well, it's a great campaign and uh, I'm very happy to let you folks know uh, your effort have a echo and impact. And uh, we've seen a lot of uh, attention around the world regarding the prisoners in Iran, which is some of them is uh, prominent and well-known people. Uh, Larry, would you please, uh, Larry, let me, before Larry introduce himself, I told he, he had lots of energies and we're talking pretty much daily. And since the campaign began, uh, literally he's living in my backyard. Larry Everest, <laughs> I'm glad I have you on this interview. Well, it's great to be with you, Vahid. I just want to be with you in California where it's like 30 degrees warmer than it is here. But you keep putting me off on that. I don't know what's going on here, you know. No, seriously, it's really been, I echo what Dolly said, our great appreciation. First of all, it's been a lot of fun to get to know you and to work with you. That's been a real joy. But beyond that, as Dolly has said, um, you know, it makes a huge difference. You've really uh, brought the, the uh, fight to free the political prisoners now and the international emergency campaign to free Iran's political prisoners uh, to the world. Uh, and uh, that, that has been so important. And, uh, you know, and I just, I, I, I look forward to continuing, uh, continuing with you. Hopefully I won't bother you every single day, but frequently. Um, but I, uh, you know, I've been a revolutionary since the 60s and I've written for revolutionrevcom.s uh, website. And uh, in the early in 1979, I was asked to go to Iran after the revolution and cover that, which I did. And I went back again in um, uh, the spring of 1980 and uh, saw what a powerful revolution had happened in Iran. But at the same time, I saw the viciousness and brutality of the Islamic Republic as it was trying to consolidate its power up close and personal. You know, friends of mine were massacred. Uh, I was in a demonstration where people were killed. I had to grab my buddy Ahmed and, you know, him and I had to, you know, skedaddle while they were, the Hezbollah were throwing rocks at us and hurting people, you know. So when I heard about the international campaign to free Iran's political prisoners, and you know, I've covered Iran since then in the Middle East, I've been in Iraq. I wrote a book, uh, Oil, Power and Empire, Iraq and the US Global Agenda, which I, you know, I still think stands up uh, 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 about the invasion of Iraq. And um, so when I heard about this campaign, uh, I was really excited and felt it was it was tremendously important and wanted to uh, contribute to it. And I think I encourage uh, uh, readers uh, and listeners 
to read the emergency appeal the campaign put out last March, I think that really concentrates what this campaign is all about and why it's so important. It's something you can find at freeiranspoliticalprisonersnow.org. That's a mouthful, but it makes total sense. Freeiranspoliticalprisonersnow.org. And I'm not going to read this whole emergency appeal, but it, it, the title of it is The Lives of Iran's Political Prisoners Hang in the Balance, We Must Act Now. And the death of the beloved poet Bakhtin Abtash, there's still six uh, hunger striking prisoners who've been hunger striking for 28 days. Their lives are in the balance, the lives of many of these other political prisoners that I know you've been talking about uh, with Hadi from the Center for Human Rights and Miriam Claren and uh, Jeff uh, Kaufman and Marsha Ross of the Nazreen film. Um, they really hang in the balance. This is an emergency. Um, these uh, prisoners are in imminent moral danger and we're calling on anyone who stands for a better world to rally to this cause of freeing Iran's political prisoners. Uh, we're, we're highlighting the fact that this has come out of, of you know, a massive uprising by the Iranian people, that the repression has been met with inspiring heroism and that these prisoners uh, must be unconditionally re released. And I know, uh, uh, I'm sure Dolly's going to want to flesh this out more. And the, the final point we make is that we're opposed to both the imprisonment, but also any threats and war moves against Iran and any sanctions. And, and this is something Dolly and I want to talk more about in the interview today because it's a point of controversy and it's something that's very important for people to understand. So again, uh, free Iran's political prisoners now. And this is something that's been signed by people like Noam Chomsky, Shireen Abadi, Daniel Ellsberg, Ariel Cornell West, Gloria Steinem, uh, very prominent people from all over the world. And we need many more signatures and we need to get this emergency appeal out much further than it is right now. And, 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 and this is too is something we wanted to talk to you about uh, today about why this isn't, we're not just doing this symbolically. This is a way to actually fight to win the freedom of these political prisoners. And we're committed to nothing less than that. Thank you very much, Dolly. Uh, yeah, I want to amplify uh, what Larry said about this campaign being unique in its demands of no, you know, to free the prisoners, but on the correct terms of this is the repression and the oppressive and repressive state of the Islamic Republic is not an excuse for the U.S. to attack them, which will bring more unbearable suffering on the Iranian people. And sanctions also impact the lives of people adversely. And so these demands have to do with what kind of world do people want to live in? What's the future? You know, um, what kind of society is acceptable? And, um, and I think it's controversial what Larry said. People 
want to kind of like just like, oh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We have to choose the lesser of evil. They want to have amnesia about what happened in 1953 in Iran with the CIA coup and the Shah and the bloody regime of the Shah and just kind of, well, maybe the U.S. can do some good this time. No. Look at its history. Look at what it's done in Iran and around the world. So, and even as recent as Afghanistan, you know what I mean? So it's really important to fight for, you know, a a certain direction, if you will, of what's the future for humanity, you know, and that's the interest, not just proceeding from the maneuverings of different governments for their benefits, you know, and so this demand to free the prisoners on the correct understanding of what kind of world and what kind of society and what's really going to free them, because there's a question of if you play into the negotiations between the governments, that's a losing strategy. And even if you play into, well, we just need to alleviate the suffering by maybe, you know, uh, I mean, I think it's certainly everybody can feel it in terms of sending money to strikers and trying to alleviate the suffering of the people who could not feel that. But this thing of what is going to weaken the regime, what actually exposure, what condemnation, uh, and I, I'm sure your listeners know that Raizi said at the, his UN speech that um, there are three pillars of Iranian society. Okay, he said this with a straight face now. Uh, he said rationality, justice, and freedom. Every word is a lie. And it's important to poke at that and expose that and rip, rip the cover off of it. That it's, especially when you look at the justice, so-called justice system and the situation of the political prisoners, the dissidents, it's, it's irrational, arbitrary. Lawyers are being detained. People are being executed in secret. Uh, and people like uh, Bakhtash Aptin was allowed to die in his hospital bed, shackled to his bed. Uh, a really renowned poet, filmmaker, an important voice of conscience, who was, as we're saying, very courageous. Iran's political prisoners are very courageous people like him, you know, who didn't flinch or, you know, as Penn America said, he didn't go and hide when they, you know, put a target on his back. He stood up for his principles. And this is what's happening. And these people are very important to be amongst the masses in the streets in Iran, in Iranian society, standing up for the environment, standing up for women's rights, standing up for the rights of minor oppressed minorities like the uh, Kurds, you know, and the Arabs, standing up for religious freedom. So this is this is why this campaign is uh, unique in its, you know, political thrust, its political demands, and what Larry was talking about in its signatories of some of the most prominent voices of conscience in the world, uh, from around the world, no less. Uh, we have signatories on this from 40 different countries on this appeal. And, you know, every continent except Antarctica, we like to say. <laughs> Uh, you know, so that covers a part of the globe, but it's not enough. We actually want the whole world to be watching and put the uh, Islamic Republic under scrutiny to the point where they feel that the political price for them is too high and they're going to let these people go. That's wonderful. I really appreciate your efforts. That means a lot for Iranian opposition to see international 
group uh, standing up for defending uh, Iranian political prisoners, which is just a matter of the justice. But uh, we've seen many, many uh, international peoples, uh, they ignore that important, you know, uh, the greatest example is the negotiation happening right now uh, between US, Iran, France, Germany, China, Russia, everything is on the table but human rights. Everything is on the table but uh, for, uh, political prisoners. And I really appreciate you guys' effort and it means a lot for us. Uh, but with that said, either of you wants, uh, would you please introduce the IEC to our listeners? What are you guys doing? What is the agenda? What is your plan for future? What you did in the past and what's your plan for future? Well, I think um, the IEC is in there. That's our uh, shorthand for the International Emergency Campaign to free Iran's political prisoners now. And um, the, uh, the best way to understand that campaign is to go back to our emergency appeal uh, that I was referencing before, because it spells out what our principles are, that this is an emergency, that the prisoners are being uh, held illegitimately, they're being tortured, they're being executed. These people are heroes, they are not criminals, they are resisting courageously, we need to stand with them and organize, as Dolly was saying, a global outcry. Uh, because what is it that's going to, what is going to actually free the prisoners? It's going to be the kind of global outcry from many different quarters of society, from all walks of life, different political viewpoints, different ideological views, and so on, that are demanding justice for Iran's political prisoners and freedom for them. I mean, look at Iran, as Dali was referring to, the Islamic Republic's locking up labor organizers, women's rights uh, fighters, artists, filmmakers, uh, communists, revolutionaries, uh, nonviolent activists, uh, you know, all and then targeting the nationalities like the Kurds and the Baluch people. And I was in Kurdistan when I when I was there, the religious minorities and so on. We need as broad a unity as that of people speaking out against this. And um you know, this is this is one of the main reasons. One of the obstacles, as you and Dolly were referring to, is this notion in this country that if you uh, condemn the actions of the Islamic Republic, somehow you are supporting the CIA or the United States or so on and so forth. You know. No, we're proceeding, as we say in the emergency appeal, from the interests of humanity, not the machinations of the different governments. The other thing we, we've had arguments about is whether we not, but you know, in the broader community of people who want to uh, free Iran's political prisoners, there's a big current of people 
who say, well, we should back the U.S. in their sanctions. We should uh, urge the U.S. and England and so on to sanction. And what's, what's wrong with this? Number one, we have to mobilize the people. That takes enormous hard work. And it takes changing the way people think and what they know about Iran. That's why your radio broadcasts are so important, you know. Um, that's number one. Not relying on counting on uh, the governments to do this. I was in Iraq. I saw them starving children because of U.S. sanctions. They killed over 500,000 Iraqi children with these sanctions that a lot of people mistakenly supported before the, the invasion of 1991 in the name that this was not, this, this wasn't about war. These were nonviolent. No, they're not. They're very violent. And the other thing that people really, uh, so we need to mobilize the people to do this. And we also right. have to understand the very important analysis that the revolutionary leader and author of the new communism, Bob Avakian developed. And I had studied the Middle East for a long time and I learned tremendous amount from this analysis that what we have in conflict here uh, across the world with jihadism and Islamic fundamentalism on one hand and the Western imperialists on the other is a clash between two reactionary outmoded forces, one from the advanced dominant countries and one from the oppressed countries. They're both reactionary forces. The Islamic Republic isn't an anti-imperialist standard bearer or something like this. And the US isn't a force for good in the world. If you support, even as they clash, they reinforce each other. Look what happened in Afghanistan with 20 years of war. What did it do? It ended up strengthening the Taliban, you know? And if you side with either of these, you strengthen both. And I just think that's very important analysis because we don't want to be trapped between these two. Part of the reason we're fighting so hard for Iran's prisoners is that they represent this new wave of resistance and freedom fighters in, um, in Iran who are fighting for a better future and are showing so much courage. We've, we've said heroism for our times. That's been the name of our programs that we've done. And it, and it just, it's tremendous uh, uh, courage. And so the fight for political prisoners has everything to do with the future of Iran. And what happens in Iran has a global impact as well. So. This, this is very important stuff to get into. And of course, people can go to the, the campaign website, which again is very broadly. I personally, and these are my own views, not the views of the campaign, would also encourage people to go to revcom.us, revcom.us, uh, and, and um, look at that website. I write for, and contribute to that. And you can find the work of Bob Avakian there. You can find, uh, there's a lot of support on that website for uh, the genuine revolutionaries fighting in Iran. So 
And so that's a broader view of, of, uh, of what's going on. And I would encourage um, uh, listeners to also take a look at, at that. Because uh, obviously in the world today, there are all kinds of titanic contradictions and horrendous issues that are facing all of us all over the world. You know, and uh, I mean, here they're arresting environmentalists in Iran, you know, as we have a global climate crisis. So um, I don't know. I, I think Dolly can. can yeah, I want to I want to yeah. highlight something that Larry was saying in terms of a couple of things in terms of what you asked about what this campaign has done. I think the most important thing we did was to actually publish this uh, emergency appeal in the New York Review of Books last summer in their summer issue. And, uh, and this statement, this appeal continues to be very relevant and very powerful a tool to actually you know, reorient the political terrain in terms of this question of the urgency of freeing these prisoners. And one part just uh, one section of our appeal says many prisoners, their families, supporters, and various Iranian organizations have been speaking out and demanding freedom for all Iran's political prisoners at great risk to their own safety. The Iranian Writers Association has denounced the execution of prisoners of conscience, even as it is under extreme repression. Journalists and Defenders of Human Rights Center member Nargis Mohammadi has been in prison for five and a half years. And, and then she's recently been somewhat disappeared. We don't even know what her state is since they took her off the streets. That's very, very urgent and dangerous uh, for her. But I think this thing of, uh, and the persecution of lawyers, which is a certain element in terms of tearing up civil society. You're, how are people supposed to have any rights if their lawyers are imprisoned and disappeared? So this is, but I think that there's importance to this question, the, the heroism that this highlights of the political prisoners in Iran, of the dissidents, of people who are standing up at great risk to themselves, like these hunger strikers right now, almost a month, they're on hunger strike and their lives are in imminent danger. But they are setting an example to the world. That's what Iran's political prisoners are doing, setting an example to the world of courage, courage under severe repression, of standing up for other people, not just standing up for yourself, you know, whatever the, the, you know, people just thinking of themselves, but they're standing up for a better world and a better society and for other people's rights and freedom and for the environment. I just think, you know, part of the uh, campaign to highlight this is that people shouldn't, it's not just to admire them, but actually to follow their example and emulate them. <clears throat> To, for because really, when if the world has ever needed hero heroism and courage, it's right now, <laughs> okay, everywhere in the world, including in this country, of people standing up and refusing to go along with the stuff that we know is unacceptable, intolerable, you know, and unbearable, frankly, for human beings, for human society, and our future. So, I just think that. In terms of what you asked about what we've done, the appeal is on our website, but also we've had several programs. We've had held two programs at the New York uh, Revolution Books, which people can find on their website. 
Um, and then also recently, which Radio Puya was very nice to have broadcasted the program with the Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco on January 9th to unite broad forces, you know, to speak out, seeking out very broadly people who want justice, people who see something unique happening here, people who really yearn for a world that is different. So I just think these are some of the things. And then we want to publish this appeal further in other countries as well as in the U.S. So this question of people donating to further publish this, we would like to publish it in Europe in particular, okay, in places like France or Germany and also in other publications in the U.S. We want to have further programs with, hey, we want people to take it into the campuses, into the other churches and people's communities. You know, this needs to continue to grow into a tidal wave. And this is what we're, you know, out to do. As Larry said, this is not symbolic. We really are determined to, to fight for their freedom and dignity. And even by shining a spotlight right now to prevent harm to them. And I think the regime was very uh, kind of uh, stung by, Yes, they caused the death of Bakhtash, you know, by refusing to give him medical care, but also they wanted it to be quieted down. Like, don't talk about it. You know what I mean? Don't talk about what happened to him because he is an example in both ways, both his courage, but also his really cruel murder at the hands of the Islamic State. So, so these things we are um, trying to bring out and also what Larry said about the international dimension of our campaign of spreading this throughout the world. Um, the day before we had our program at the Unitarian, with the Unitarian Universalist Society, there was a demonstration in Bogota, Colombia. I mean, there's been demonstrations in Europe, okay, in Frankfurt, and we've had press conferences and some demonstrations here, but there was a demonstration of all places in Bogota, Colombia, called by revolutionaries, holding photographs. Uh, paintings that they did of the prisoners that are just beautiful and that you can also find on our website that this is how it can spread because people there took this upon their own initiative imagine this was happening at the Iranian embassy in a lot of countries <laughs> people showing up and say free the political prisoners you know and no U.S. threat or war moves I mean that would be very powerful movement and this is our you know, kind of a goal to, you know, fight for their freedom by making this a global tidal wave. This is great, great program. I'm very impressed with what you guys doing and what, uh, how much effort you put and truly appreciate it. Uh, what is the plan for future for 2022? Well, I, I think Dolly really uh, uh, covered it. I mean, uh, first of all, I would very much encourage people to go to our website and sign up right. and sign up, sign the appeal. That way you will get connected. And that website, again, is freeiranspoliticalprisonersnow.org. As Dolly was saying, First, you'll, you'll see the emergency appeal, and you can read that and hopefully sign it and contribute to have it published um, elsewhere. We did publish it in the, we raised $15,000 to publish it in the New York Review of Books, the most prestigious 
intellectual journal in the United States. And we want to do the same thing because this way we are reaching millions of people, literally, you know, and that's that's what it's going to take to make this the kind of an issue that George Floyd, for example, became in, in the US, that everyone knows about it, is talking about it, is forced to take a stand on it. The other thing that you can see at the website, as Dolly was saying, is our programs. But beyond that, there are, there are frequent updates of the news. There's resource pages where you can find the interviews we've done and the different members and supporters of the campaign have done. You can find the emergency appeal in Farsi. You can find it in German, in Turkish, in French, in Spanish. Of course, obviously in English, you can share it and spread it. And you can find ways to be part of this because we realize that we cannot free the political prisoners without you, without other people joining in, in one way or the other, whether that's signing or contributing funds or, or spreading the word on social media, uh, attending the different programs we have and helping uh, get the appeal published in a country, doing what the Colombians did, organizing an action at the Iranian consulate or embassy, all these kinds of things. And it has to be about the people. So 2020, uh, 2022 is a year of doing further programs. Perhaps we'll do something on International Women's Day. We're certainly going to market because the treatment of women in Iran is a total outrage, and I won't say all the words I would normally say uh, <laughs> about that outrage. Um, and, uh, and the women are playing a really crucial role in the resistance. I mean, Nargis Mohammadi, uh, you know, Nahid Tagavi, Nazreen Sudadeh, I mean, they're just on and on. And so just to finish the thought, so we want to uh, have the appeal published more. We want to do more events and we want to reach further uh, to more and more people and involve more and more people uh, in this campaign. I think um, what Larry said about the importance of people joining and contributing ideas, funds, you know, activities, there's actually a uh, campaign plans on our website, if you go to the resource page, that lays out the overview of why this campaign, it lays out what we've accomplished in this one year that we've existed, and also it lays out going forward, key fronts of work, staying alert to new developments, and there's a whole section on that in terms of things we want to see as we go forward. Now, this is obviously beginning ideas and people can contribute to these, but also they, people can come up with other things. For example, what you're doing is extremely important in terms of getting the word out all over the world about this crucial campaign that affects, frankly, people in Iran, but also people in the world as far as, like I said, what kind of future are we going to have if people just submit to repression and oppression vicious oppression, you know, to the kind of bizarre uh, behavior where a man can walk down the street in Iran with the beheaded, uh, the head, decapitated head of his wife. 
I think she was a teenager, but that's backed by the government. Okay, that's why he could do it. That's why he did it. You know, that kind of misogynist world, we cannot put up with that. And the people in Iran that are resisting that, the dissidents, the, the people who are speaking out, it's very important that it's not uh, resistance, repression, end of story, okay? It's resistance, repression, more resistance. And this is what we're bringing to the table. We're not going to put up with this and we're going to come to the, we're gonna, we have their back because the people in Iran are our people, Okay, these are the people of the world. They are brothers and sisters. And so it's very important for, and especially in this country, we do have a special responsibility, as I was saying earlier, about the history of this country towards Iran, towards people in that region, towards the world. You know, we have a special responsibility to stand with the people in Iran and let them know that we are with them. And it, I think there's already indications that when people have heard us and heard this message, that people even in the U.S. are taking a stand against, you know, the repression in Iran, against their own government doing anything to the people of Iran. That gives people tremendous heart and encouragement. And we've and actually the regime doesn't like it. We've also heard that. You know what I mean? So fine, you know, that means we're getting somewhere, <laughs> you know, if they're complaining, okay, good. Um, but also it gives people tremendous courage that we're together in this fight. You know, we're part of the humanity that's going to, for fighting for a better world. So, so I just think this campaign is, you know, it, it, it can use a lot more energy in terms of, like I say, things like you know, this radio show or other, you know, venues, we would like to get onto a lot of different, you know, media outlets and amplify their voices because we are their voice. And that's a reality, you know, and we're speaking and amplifying their, their, you know, resistance, their, their, you know, obviously the horrors that's being visited upon them, but also to let people know that it's a two-sided fight in Iran. You know, it's not just, uh, the horrors that the regime has been carrying on for 43 years, that there's something new, both in terms of the repression that's new, a new wave, more intensified repression, including what happened last year with them shooting people in Isfahan that were uh, protesting, shooting them in the eyes. I mean, what kind of a, a society, what kind of a system does that? People have to ask. And if you're not, if you're turning away from that, and especially I'm speaking now to people in the U.S., you know, if you're turning away, away from that, you are contributing to it. You are complicit, whether you know it or not. And we're trying to bring people, to, bring to people the understanding. You don't have to go along with it. We can take a stand with the people and contribute to their struggle. So this is, you know, like I say, go to the resource page of our campaign website, freeronspoliticalprisonersnow.org, and find um, the going forward. These are just initial. Write us. Let us know your ideas. On what, because actually somebody from the Unitarian Universalist Society contacted us and said, oh, we would like to co-host a program. That's how that started. So we started working with them. And then all kinds of people participated in organizing this, including a lot of people from the Iranian diaspora, which was very heartening. It was really good. You know, people contributed all kinds of ideas. And in fact, 
told us to contact you. <laughs> Thank you. That's how that came about. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So this is part of the, what we need in terms of the initiative and energy of the people. I truly appreciate uh, your effort and your team effort. Uh, I don't have any other question. If anything is untold and you guys want to add anything to this interview, microphone is yours before we finish the interview. I know Larry I think, has what, I, I think what Dolly's, the last thing Dolly said is a great place to end. Yes. Folks, I appreciate for accepting our invitation and coming to this show. Uh, I hope from bottom of my heart, I hope one day we'll be able to broadcast that from Tehran, uh, okay. the Iran without political prisoners. Right. The free Iran and the, with all the beauties and all the uh, kindness we can find among the people. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, and we appreciate the idea that you had that started this whole week. <laughs> no problem. No problem at all. And uh, I hope we'll be able to, Radio Puya, be able to contribute as much as we can to the effort you guys have. And we're always on your side and always our microphone, our program is in your hand to uh, echo your voice throughout the world. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. This is the Michael Slate Show, and we've been listening to Larry Everest and Dolly Veal of the International Emergency Campaign speaking on Radio Poya. We're going to take a quick musical break and be right back, so stay tuned. How can I tell you my truth, little one? How can I tell you the things I have done Though I cannot see the sky, you know I only think of you And you shine for me more brightly than the sun And how can I tell you the tears I have shed that was Angela Kijo with How Can I Tell You from the award-winning film Nazarene. Now we're going to hear from Sansara Taylor, co-initiator of Rise Up for Abortion Rights, speaking on forced motherhood equals female enslavement. So close to 10 years ago, at a rally that I led at Union Square for abortion rights here in New York City, a woman who was just walking by stopped and listened for a while. She came close to the edge of the stage and I noticed that she was shaking. So I went over and I talked to her. And she told me, through tears, a story that she had held in silence for probably 40 or 50 years. She told me about being 16 years old, growing up in Biloxi, Mississippi, and how her best friend, also 16, found out that she was pregnant. Her best friend, her family was Catholic. And she was so ashamed, and she especially didn't want to tell her father. Now, I want you to remember what it was like to be 16. I want you to picture your best friend. Think about the hopes you had, the dreams for your future. And now think about the isolation, 
the shame, the terror you would have to feel at 16 to go and rummage through your father's things. Look for where he kept his gun. Take it out, point it at your head, and pull the trigger. This is what this woman's best friend did. This is what it means when abortion, legal safe abortion, is criminalized and not available. And this is not the only story. That year, I traveled the country with other people, organizing people to stand up and fight against the growing, mounting assault on women's fundamental right to abortion. And every single city we went to, every stop we made, starting here in New York City, going all the way through the Midwest, up to Fargo, North Dakota, through South Dakota, Kansas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, Texas, every stop we made, every stop we made, women came up and they shared stories like this. A woman in Texas told of holding her best friend as she bled to death after a botched back alley illegal abortion. She told of feeling paralyzed with fear as the life left her best friend's body. Fear that if she went to the hospital, they'd both end up in prison. This woman carries a guilt with her to this day. A guilt that is not on her, it's on this state. A woman from Mexico recounted how as a teenager, she was gang raped, denied an abortion, and forced to have the child of a rapist. She didn't even know which one. She described raising this child as an immigrant, as a domestic worker in Texas, living in the shadows, scrambling to raise her son, and having him look at her and ask her his whole life to why she wouldn't talk about his father. She didn't tell her son until he was in his 30s. Think about that. Another woman told the story of lying on a kitchen table in a filthy kitchen while a man she was almost certain was not a doctor molested her. And she laid there and endured it just hoping, just hoping that when he was done, he would provide the abortion she came for. Can you imagine being so desperate that you would climb up a dirty, dark staircase and stay and endure a sexual assault in silence? because the alternative is worse. This is what it means when women do not have access to safe legal abortion. And these stories were not just in the past. We heard stories from teenagers in Oklahoma throwing themselves down the stairs to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. We heard stories from women in Jackson, Mississippi drinking Purell poisoning their bodies, trying to get rid of something that was growing inside of them that would change and shatter their whole lives that they did not want. This was 10 years ago. And in the 10 years between 2011 and 2021, over 500 further abortion restrictions were passed into law. And things have gotten even worse with record restrictions last year. In Texas right now, abortion 
There is a near total abortion ban. It has been in effect since last September. I was speaking to a woman, an abortion provider down in Texas a few weeks ago, and she told me, she said, Sansara, you have no idea the level of atrocity going on down here. And she used that word, atrocity. She talked about girls who were brought into her clinic, victims of rape and incest, and women desperate to terminate their pregnancies they didn't want, who she had to turn away. And you could hear the desperation of these women coming out in this provider's voice. You could hear the tears in her eyes as she shared this. Atrocities. These are things that shatter lives, and they radiate through a lifetime and across the conditions of all women. Now, I want you to think about that and multiply. Oh, I got another story. Before I go to multiplying, I want to tell another story. I read this story of a woman who was a drug user on the eve of being sentenced to a five-year prison sentence. And she actually managed to make it to the abortion clinic the day before the Texas restriction went into effect. And she got there, and she was desperate to get the procedure. She, did not, she already had three children at home, and she did not want to have another child in prison. But in Texas, there's a mandatory 24-hour waiting period. And so by the time the waiting period was over, the law was in effect, and her procedure was no longer legal. This woman, when she heard this, she dropped to her knees on the cold tile floor in front of the doctor, and she begged. She begged the doctor to do the abortion. Now think about that. I mean, have you ever dropped to your knees in front of total strangers and begged? Think about what has to be going through your life, through your emotions, through your mind to drive you to that. And this woman was turned away. She was not able to get that abortion. And think about the violence of that. Think about the barbarity of that. This is what it means when there is no access to safe, legal abortion. And now I want you to multiply. I want you to multiply that story by 6 million. That's how many women of childbearing age there are in Texas right now who don't have access to meaningful legal abortion. But I don't want you to stop there. Multiply it by 100 million. That's the number that NPR estimated, the number of people in this country who will lose the legal right to abortion overnight if Roe v. Wade is overturned something that the Supreme Court of the United States is actively weighing right now. A hundred million. If Roe is overturned, more than 20 states already have laws on the books that would immediately ban or severely restrict abortion. 41% of women of, of childbearing age in this country will lose the nearest abortion clinic. Nearly every state in the South and most of the large parts of the Midwest. Now, I want you to think about the women's lives that will be foreclosed, the dreams that will be shattered, the women and girls who will be forced to drop out of school, the women who will be trapped in abusive relations, 
the women who will be driven into poverty or deeper into poverty, I want you to think of the insult and the humiliation and the isolation and the shame that will be inflicted on women and girls. I want you to think of the fear, no, really the terror, that will hang over the lives of all women and girls because all of them will know that that could be them. Someone else is controlling your body in its most intimate dimensions. Someone else is controlling the most important life-altering decisions of your life. Someone else can even decide to sacrifice your life for the benefit of something growing within you. And in this case, that someone is the state, the laws, the courts, and yes, the prisons, the state, and the supreme decisions that are being made by a pack of fanatical, theocratic Christian fascists on the court. Really think about it. Forced motherhood is female enslavement. Now, sometimes people look at this anti-abortion movement and this whole momentum behind it, and they scratch their heads. And they say, it doesn't make sense. If they're so pro-life and they're so against abortion, why don't they support birth control and sex education? Or they scratch their heads and say, if they care about babies so much, why aren't they helping end poverty and health care and child care? But it makes perfect sense because this movement has never been motivated by life. They've never been motivated about concern for babies. They are motivated by the fanatical drive to control and subjugate women. Mm -hmm. That is their aim. And it does make sense. And they are also about ending birth control. They're out for revenge at all the ways that women have gotten out of place in their view in the last several generations. They want to slam this backwards. And this theocratic movement is aiming for the rights of LGBTQ people to strip them away and slam them backwards too. If you go outside any abortion clinic anywhere in this country, you will hear them say this straight up. <coughs> They'll be shaming, harassing, and screaming at women. They say things like, wicked women burn in hell. God hates gays. They quote the Bible, one of their favorite passages, women should submit to their husbands as their husbands submit to the Lord. And they recite this prayer. Lord, please break this curse of independence that has afflicted women. Some of these fascists don't even talk about women. They just refer to host bodies. If you're paying attention, you've heard this in the news, Main, like politicians and mainstream media, host bodies. These people are not going to be satisfied with a patchwork of half the country with the right to abortion and half the country without it. No, they aim for criminalizing all abortions for all women in all circumstances. They aim to send women and those who help them, the doctors, the friends, the family members, anybody else to prison for daring to control their own reproduction. Do you know that just last October, a 21-year-old woman from Oklahoma, a Native American woman, Brittany Pula, was convicted of manslaughter and sent to prison for a miscarriage? This is the future these fascists are fighting for. And Brittany is not alone. The National Advocates for Pregnant Women documented 
1,254 cases between 2006 and 2020 in which, quote, being pregnant was a necessary element of the crime or a but-for reason for the coercive punishment action, punitive action taken. I'm talking about arrests, detentions, imprisonment for miscarriages, accusations of self-induced abortions, drug addictions that harmed a fetus, all of this and more. This anti-abortion movement has assassinated 11 abortion providers. It has bombed clinics. It has committed arson. It has committed kidnappings. It has invaded clinics hundreds and hundreds of times. Just on New Year's of this year, a Planned Parenthood in Tennessee was burnt to the ground. And it doesn't even make the news. This is the background violence that's been building and normalized in this society. And it is the future that they are bringing not just to Texas and Mississippi, as unacceptable as that will be. They are bringing it if they succeed nationwide. This is a Christian fascist, a theocratic, woman-hating movement. And their assault on abortion is the front edge and a battering ram and an all-around fascist program that is infused with white supremacy, with xenophobic hatred of immigrants, with rabid lunatic science denialism. And this movement is making advances on every front. This movement cannot be accommodated. It will not be appeased. It will not stop until they achieve victory or until they are defeated. All right, this is the Michael Slate Show, and we've been listening to the opening part of a talk by Sansara Taylor, Forced Motherhood Equals Female Enslavement, at a program at Revolution Books in New York City. You can find the entire talk on YouTube, on the YouTube channel, The Revcoms. You can also find it on the website, riseupforabortionrights.org. And that's with four as a number. And you'll find lots of other useful materials and plans for actions on March 8th, International Women's Day. As Sansara has said, will you rise up or give up? And that brings us to the end of yet another show. Write to me at mslate at themichaelslateshow.com.